My name is Gloria Halverson, and um, I'm speaking this morning on infertility in low-resourced countries, just to make sure this is where you would like to be. And worldwide, there are more than 60 to 80 million couples that suffer from infertility. This is a huge, huge problem. And the majority of those people are in the developing world. Way back in 1994, the United Nations had an international conference, and one of the important future actions that they talked about was having prevention and appropriate treatment of infertility when feasible in low-resource countries. The bottom line is, unfortunately, not very much has happened in that area yet, and it's, in a way, quite understandable because of the issues involved, which we'll talk about some of that today. In most... um, low-resource countries, when you talk about reproductive health care, or a lot of these countries have reproductive health care clinics, they have a combination of family planning and contraception. And so that doesn't do anything to address this issue. While it's true, some of these countries have the biggest problems with um, number of births and population growth. Ironically, they're the same countries that have the biggest problem with infertility, and it becomes more of an issue. And unfortunately, for the individual involved, it's huge. Um, I can tell you that working uh, back when I was a medical student, it was my first short-term mission trip, and we went to Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, and uh, which was actually only a country for about three months, so we didn't even know where we were going when we left. But... Everyone I met there, because, you know, I was in my mid-20s, how many children do you have? And I would say none. Back, I was the first married woman they ever had in our medical school. And had I gotten pregnant, I would have been fired. I'd say none. And they go, why? What's wrong with you? You know, what's the matter? Because that's what women are for in these cultures. And so it's a big, big problem for them. There's social, psychological, economic, and health issues that are caused by uh, infertility. A common statement you'll hear or common belief in low-resource countries is barrenness is the curse of the woman, and infertility is always the woman's fault. You know, in this country, when you look at infertility problems, and if I gave you a graph of the problems, it's pretty much half and half male and female issues. But that's not the case, and that's not the belief in these countries. Socially, these women are ostracized from social groups. They have less social status because they're not a mom. And a lot of things, they have to have children in order to be able to participate in the things that the women do. So they have a social isolation. Um, they're stigmatized. Uh, in Rwanda, women who are unable to have children are thought to practice witchcraft and um, they are, they bring bad luck to their communities. Um, they can't, there's traditional scarves that women wear in South Africa. You are not allowed to wear one of these scarves unless you have had children. Um, so there are big um, social uh, ostracism issues that are involved here. Maritally, um, the family, there's so much pressure to conceive from the whole family. And traditionally, the woman has left her family and moved in with her husband's family, and they are all on her case in order to get pregnant. 
Um, she's harassed a lot. She is neglected. Um, there are, are cultures in which the men feel that it is not their responsibility to feed their wife if she has not borne him children. Um, lots of domestic violence. Um, big percentage will say that they have been um, abused uh, by their husbands. Um, if they would die in these families, they're, they're a special black mark is put on their back when they die, and they are taken out the back door of the hut. In fact, they'll even cut a hole in the back and take them out. They're not even allowed out through the front because they're so shamed. Um, men are very frequently encouraged uh, to have extramarital affairs because they need to have children, and they are also very often encouraged uh, into polygamy. This wife can't have a child for me. I'll have a uh, child with someone else. And divorce is very common. And when these women are divorced, they're gone. They're, they, their family does not want them back. They've been shamed um, by being infertile. The other family doesn't want them. They're out basically on the street. Um, here's a phrase from Wanda. There can be not any peace or love in a marriage without children. And again, that's the woman's fault. So those are the social consequences that affect her. Psychologically, a lot of gender identity issues. You're not a real woman. This is what you're created for. You can't have children. You're not a real woman. And although I talked about how it's always the woman's fault, men also have gender identity issues if they're not able to conceive children. And they are mocked. And there are uh, slang names that they're called um, with reference to their body parts and things like that because they can't have a child. Um, they feel guilt, anxiety, shame, worthlessness, depression, profound sadness. Big psychological effect. Economically, um, there's a financial burden of going to have treatment. Um, and... Women have been, um, in Nigeria there was a study, and women took anywhere from 55 to 100% of all of their savings and would spend it to go for infertility treatment because it was so important to them. Um, women lose their inheritance, their finances, their home, as I talked about, if they're kicked out because they can't have kids. They lose their power. And important in these cultures, they lose their future because they don't have anyone who's going to help them with work um, and bring in the crops and get the farming done. They have no one who's going to take care of them as they get older because they don't have nursing homes. This is the role of the family to take care of the elderly. Um, so there's a large economic consequence to that also. There's health consequences. Obviously, there's mental health consequences with all the shaming and guilt and depression that's going on. Um, there's suicide in these women because there's really nowhere for them to turn and they feel hopeless. Um, there's a lot of physical health issues that come up because it's important that they have their children. So they start doing increasingly risky sexual behavior. And when they do that, they, have, they get uh, more um, sexually transmitted infections like HIV, AIDS, gonorrhea, chlamydia, other sexually transmitted infections. So just about any way you look at it, infertility 
has a massive impact on people in low resource countries. All right, so if there's so much of this, what are the causes? And you can look at this chart. Uh, you can look at the developed world and the developing world. And you can see, this is, I think, the most striking uh, figure on here. Tubal infertility. In the developed world, about a third of women have a tubal factor for infertility. And we today we just automatically treat them with IVF. Take care of that. It's the easiest, highest success rate in IVF is tubal infertility. Well, you're not going to have IVF going on in a village in Ghana. 85%, 85% tubal infertility. And um, it's, a, it's the biggest problem. And if you ask the people there, though, in contrast, what are the causes of fertility? It's not anovulation. It's not tubal factor. It's not endometriosis. It's evil spirits. It's a psychological defect in a woman or psychosocial sexual problems. So their worldview is totally different on how they look at this because for women in their cultures with life revolving around having children and a family, all sorts of myths and ideas spring up about it to explain this kind of thing. Africa has the highest incidence of infertility in the world. And there's a lot of extramarital and commercial um, sex that's available. I just uh, came back two days ago from Africa, and in so many of these areas, the women are at home in the village. There is no work. The men have to go to the city to get work, and they meet other women there and uh, buy sex or have sex, and then they come home to their families every month or every couple months, and when they come home, they bring sexually transmitted infections back home to the wife. And so she gets it. But now it's her fault that she can't have children. Um, polygamy, uh, they don't use contraception much. They rely on a lot of traditional practices. They increase in STDs, increase in teen pregnancies, which are more risky. So if I mention the biggest one is tubal obstruction, in third world countries or low resource countries, what are the risks? Well, one is iatrogenic, improper counseling before tubal ligation. This is a disaster. Um, many countries, uh, if, if you remember, um, where population is very high, for example, like in India, they have campaigns and you'll get a transistor radio if you have your tubes tied. And so they went to villages and they lined up women you know, about eight in a row and just go down the line and do tubal ligations. Remember, a lot of these people are illiterate. They can't read or write. Um, they're being offered this wonderful gift. And uh, is the room monitor here? Can I just ask? If you see her come back, maybe we can get some more chairs. Um, there are a couple of chairs scattered around here. Yeah, can we get some more chairs, perhaps? Okay. Um, so these women have no idea that this is per tubal ligations are permanent. Um, they think it might be for child spacing, but they have no idea that it's meant to be permanent, and then they're absolutely devastated that they have done this, and the transistor radio is not of as much value to them. Uh, ectopic pregnancies are common because when women have had multiple infections, um, their tubes get damaged, and they're more likely to have an ectopic pregnancy. 
Ectopic pregnancies in our country are diagnosed very early, often before they rupture if women are under care. Not here. Many women die from ruptured ectopics, but if they don't die, the damage of the tube blowing apart and blood spilling everywhere damages the remaining tubes and they're not likely to get pregnant again. And reproductive tract infections. So if we look at the reproductive tract infections, what do they tend to be? They tend to be gonorrhea and chlamydia, the most common worldwide, STDs that damage tubes, uh, HIV, um, tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, uh, I worked in an area in uh, the brothels in Mumbai in India, and on that alley, 70% of the women were HIV positive, and the majority of them had multidrug resistance TB. There's something about the living conditions that they're in and the closeness. Tuberculosis still is a major problem in low-resource countries. And a secondary site for tuberculosis besides the lung is it then goes to the pelvis. And it's the most damaging type of pelvic infection that you can have. It's next to impossible to repair tubes that have been damaged by tuberculosis. Um, Following abortions, people getting um, infections from having abortions, which are not done in uh, hospitals or places that necessarily have a lot of sterility. Um, unhygienic obstetric practices, same thing. Most, uh, most babies in low-resource countries are not delivered by obstetricians. They're not delivered by family practitioners. Um, some are delivered by midwives, usually lay midwives, but most are delivered, if they're delivered with help, by traditional birth attendants, just other women in the village who try to come and help, and they don't really know anything about sterilization. Um, They don't have gloves, um, and they tend to get infected during the birth process by the unhygienic practices. Female circumcision or genital mutilation especially in areas of Africa like Sudan, are still to this day very widespread. And again, they're done uh, by lay people with instruments that aren't sharp and instruments that aren't clean and uh, not in a sterile environment. And many of these women will get pelvic infections from having uh, female circumcision done. Um, And you have to remember the male also because the male has a lot of these STIs. It takes two of them, and um, that also may interfere uh, with his fertility. This is a study done in Nigeria of people who had uh, infertility. They had had a child, and then they became infertile, and they compared them to a group who were pregnant. And the interesting things they found were that um, they had started having intercourse at a much younger age, which meant they, again, were more likely to have infections. Their mean number of sexual partners was higher. Again, more likely to pick up an STI. Regular condom use, you can see, was zero compared to 85%. And the lifetime symptoms of STDs was also significantly higher. So sexual, uh, sexually transmitted infection has a huge part to do in uh, low-resource countries. Another thing that can interfere are some of the treatments that we do. Besides unsterile births, 
Um, and just as an aside, I worked at a hospital, a mission hospital in uh, Abu Dhabi years ago. And when we did deliveries, we didn't use gloves either. We didn't have any. There weren't enough. We had to save the gloves for intra-abdominal surgery because of the lack of resources. So uh, please don't be judgmental that these people just don't care or these people just don't know what they're doing. That's unfortunately the reality that they live in. Um, frequently, people do DNCs to treat infertility. That, that has, that's not the right thing to do. Cauterize the cervix because they see some ectropion and damage the cervix. cervix. They put in a lot of uh, non-traditional herbs are used to put into the cervix, uh, to put into the vagina to uh, pack them to stop bleeding, to do things like that. Some of it, uh, one area I worked in it, they mix it with camel dung. So you can imagine the bacteria that are in there. But these are medical things that are done, and these are all outdated procedures and shouldn't be done and cause problems. Here's a quote I recently saw from World Medical Missions, one of the docs out on the post-two-year residency program that you can hear about here in the booths if you want. She said, women came from all over Nigeria to see me, to have me pray for them, to find a miracle from God. Many knew they were beyond any normal medical help, but came anyway, expecting a miracle. Women are desperate. I have seen women who have laparotomy scars, that it's a sham operation. They went to a doctor just to be cut open so they could go home to their husband and say, look, I'm trying. I'm doing everything I can. Don't don't kick me out. Um, what in some areas are likely to be treatment choices um, for people to choose if they're having this problem? This is out of Bangladesh. And you can see that uh, w- women tend to choose going to a herbalist or a traditional healer. Um, you can see for the men, their first thought was just get remarried, and that would most likely take care of it. But aside, their second choice would be a herbalist, and their third choice, a traditional healer, where you ask in this country, and they'd say, well, I'd go to a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, there is a contrast between the traditional healers and Western medicine. Then again, we can't be quite, judge, quite judgmental about their choices. Uh, the traditional healers are known by the people. They live in their villages. They're trusted. They speak the local language. They're from the same culture. When they're dealing with Westerners coming in, offering medical care, they've come from a place that they don't even know about or understand. They don't speak the language. They often don't have sufficient medical uh, medicine and tools, and they don't really understand the remedies and follow the treatments well because it doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't fit with their worldview. This is a study done in Gambia, and (coughs) actually in this study, 40% of the women sought formal health care, Western type of health care, for infertility problems. Uh, you can see there is a big difference between the two different tribes. So, again, there's a cultural thing going on here. What kinds of things were done? 12% had DNCs. What did I just tell you about that? Useless. 24% were given medicine. 5% had hysterosalpingograms. 1% had 
a semen analysis. And importantly, for most of these women, they had one visit. And there's not a lot that can be done in one visit. So how do you do an infertility evaluation? There's really just three simple things that need to be done and evaluated. One, you have to evaluate to assess ovarian function. And this is actually a picture of an ovary ovulating an egg off. Isn't that just amazing? We really are fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't we? The second thing you have to do is assess the tubal patency, and that is an egg going down through the mucosal folds of a tube, which is peristalsing and has cilia that are helping to push the egg down. (coughs) And the third thing you have to do is evaluate uh, the sperm. So, here, take a history. That's critical. There is a lot you can do (coughs) without having access to in vitro fertilization. Um, you know, how long have they been infertile? Have they had other tests and treatment? Family history, for example, is there other infertility in their family? Are there birth defects in the family that make you think there's a genetic component to it? Is there retardation that makes you think there's a genetic component? Um, how about their menstrual cycle? Are their cycles regular? Are they irregular? Do they bleed for three or four days? Do they bleed for two weeks? Just from that history, you're going to know if they're ovulating or not ovulating. Do they get bloated? Do they get pain in the middle of the month with the middle schmerz? Do they get breast tenderness? You don't need to have a lot of testing available to know that a woman whose periods are coming every 28 days and gets bloated and breast tenderness ahead of time is ovulating. Um, <clears throat> their medical history... Um, I chaired the uh, State of Wisconsin Maternal Mortality Committee for about 20 years, and one of the saddest things we saw was a young woman who uh, died during pregnancy because she had cyanotic heart disease. And uh, the religious group that she grew up in, the parents chose not to ever tell her that she had that. And medical history is very important because there's things you will find that are helping interfere with them getting pregnant, but also things that you'll find that say, no, you shouldn't get pregnant. Um, OB history, GYN history, sexual history, medication history, all of these things. Um, When you go to do a physical exam, BMI is really important. Um, Women who are overweight, you have to think more of things like polycystic ovarian disease, and more likely they'll be in ovulatory. Did they have their normal um, sex characteristics at the right times? Um, If they are missing their secondary sex characteristics, maybe they have hypothalamic hypogonadism. Their FSH and LH levels are low. Um, Do they have uh, breast discharge of milk? Do they have galactorrhea? Maybe they have a high prolactin. Do they have hirsutism or acne or things that look virilizing? That, again, will tell you they have a hormonal problem. Uh, On your pelvic exam, you look for uh, adnexal masses or tenderness or cul-de-sac masses or tenderness, or you're really looking for pelvic inflammatory disease or for endometriosis. Um, Discharge from the cervix, that could be an STI. Uterine enlargement or irregularity uh, from fibroids. So there's a whole host of things you can find out 
without having to spend, as we do in this country, literally tens of thousands of dollars on a workup that you can help not everybody, but a lot of people. Uh, male partner history, same thing, timing and onset of puberty, prior reproductive tract injury or surgery. Have they previously fathered children? How often do they have intercourse? Do they have sexual dysfunction? For example, if you pick up uh, premature ejaculation or retrograde ejaculation, which diabetics uh, tend to have, medications that will interfere. Um, you know, past medical history, have they had mumps? Have they had cancer? Uh, social history, drug use, uh, tobacco use. Um, for example, here's a study from China, and they found that in areas that have really heavy smoking, that that can affect sperm counts. So that's something that you can counsel and try to make a change. The other thing that's really important is timing of intercourse. A lot of people don't under, understand when to do this. Just for myself, I had a couple who was um, Orthodox Jewish, and so they would never have intercourse at the time of menstruation. Well, she always ovulated while she was still menstruating, so she would never get pregnant, right? And actually, we used some medication to move her ovulation so she didn't break her religious rules, but many people really don't know when to time intercourse. If you see over in the exhibits for birth control, they have cycle beads that women use to look at their fertile periods for contraception to teach them when they can get pregnant. But they also need to know when they're possible to get pregnant so that they do get pregnant. Sperm lasts for 72 hours. Okay? So if they get there early, they'll, they'll wait around for the egg. The egg is only good for 12 hours. So... Uh, there's a fertile window that is from a few days prior to ovulation until the day of ovulation. So the best time for a couple to have intercourse is one or two days before the period, uh, before ovulation happens. If you wait until the day of ovulation, you actually, the pregnancy rate goes down to only 10%. Um, so if you wait until the day after ovulation, it's only about 3%. The other thing is there's a lot of myths out there about uh, positioning for people for having intercourse. <coughs> that has been shown, except in cases with a severe retroversion of the uterus, to be totally um, not important. So it doesn't affect the pregnancy rate. Um, so women who, who had intercourse every day or every other day before ovulation it really didn't matter. Their pregnancy rate was the same. But basically, you, you, an easy thing to tell them is try having intercourse from day 10 to day 20 every other day, and you'll have it covered. All right, let's look at male factors. There can be problem with the uh, sperm, the testes. They can have a varicocele. Um, medications that men are on can cause problems. And anabolic steroids is something to think about today, which are available in low-resource places and men seem to be more into. Um, and also occupational things. Uh, some of these guys, for example, are drive trucks between cities as a job. And if they're driving a truck, you have to ask them, is the engine out in front of the cab or is it under the cab? Because if it's under the cab, the heat from the engine 
sitting all day may very well affect their sperm count. Uh, male workup. Basically, what you need is a physical exam and a semen analysis. All these other things I've listed that are stuff that are done here in the country really aren't important. Physical exam and semen analysis. And on physical exam, you can pick up things like an undescended testes or shrunken testes. Um, you can pick up a varicocele. Uh, when we talk about semen analysis, this is an interesting aside. I think of it sort of as the canary in the coal mines that would warn uh, they would die, you know, so that the miners got out in time if there was some uh, toxic fumes there. Sperm counts in the United States uh, used to be commonly over 100 million. Back in 1929, 80% of men in this country had sperm counts that were over 100 million. By 1977, that was down to 22%. And I can tell you that in my practice, well, today we consider 60 million normal, and I, it's been rare to see 100 million. So for some reason, probably environmental toxins, which is a whole nother area, sperm counts are dropping. And there is an extensive overlap between sperm counts of fertile and infertile men. Uh, for example, sorry about the spelling error there, uh, fertile men, if a sperm count is more than 48 million per ml, they're usually fertile. If it's less than 13.5 million per ml, they're usually infertile. But there's this big zone in between. And it's the same on the other parameters you check. So it's not uh, as helpful. What's happening here? To collect a semen analysis, how that's done is really important. That's another thing you can control for them having abstinence for two to three days, preferably a sterile container, so you can look for bacteria and things like that. You need to get the specimen to the lab within an hour. Uh, if they collect it at home, and not, this won't happen in a low-resource country, but in our country they keep it in the refrigerator overnight and bring it in when it's convenient the next morning, <coughs> a lot of sperm will be dead. I had somebody bring in sper uh, semen and leave the cup at the door, and it was frozen. It was winter, and it was frozen by the time we got it. So you can't do an accurate reading. Um, and you need to keep it, you know, at body temperature. Most times, two semen analyses are done. These are the kind of things that are looked for. And strict criteria by Kruger is a more uh, a newer thing that's being done that has actually a lot of uh, predictability as far as males are. And it's something that could be done in a low-resource country because it just takes looking under the microscope and looking at the sperm. And if you have too many that look like this, then it's a problem. All right, let's talk about female factors. Uh, this is an egg for ICSI uh, being held so that a sperm, which is in that little pipel, can penetrate it and put it into the egg. That's the level we're at in this country. It used to be that you would need, you'd say, anything under 5 million sperm, there was nothing you could do. People were not going to get pregnant. Now you need one barely twitching sperm. And you can use intercytoplasmic sperm injection, but not in a low-resource country. How do you watch ovulation? Well, you may have to resort to things like basal body temperature charts, 
which we used to use a long time ago here because they're cheap and women can do them themselves. And when progesterone um, is in the system, progesterone is thermogenic and it will raise the temperature about half a degree and the chart will go up. In this country today, we don't bother with that any, anymore. Excuse me, we use ovulation predictors, uh, which measure LH surge, and people buy them over the counter. The problem is they're not available, so people can't use them over there. Um, we tend to do a lot of laboratory evaluations. Again, a lot of these would not be available, and I think that they're not all that necessary. It really... Specific factors will make them necessary. If you see someone who's uh, obese and hirsute or someone who appears virilized, you want to get a DHEA sulfate. If they're not, you don't need to bother with any of these things. So you can um, minimize this to get it to work in low-resource settings. There's also tests we do of ovarian reserve, which are newer tests and more involved tests. And again, probably aren't necessary in low-resource countries. How about, look, so basically you need a good history to see if they're ovulating or not not ovulating, and, and maybe then a temperature chart on top of that. Uterine factors. Here's an egg implanting in an endometrium. What kind of uterine factors are we talking about? Well, there's uterine abnormalities that are, people are born with, like a septate uterus or a bicornuate uterus, Asherman syndrome will come from that woman having that DNC or having an infection after an abortion and causes scarring so there's not any endometrium left. And when you get her history, she doesn't have periods or her periods have gotten very light because the endometrium is gone. Here's a hysteroscopy slide and you can see this is a septate uterus. All of a sudden there's one horn and there's the other horn up there. Unfortunately, hysteroscopy is very easy. It's less expensive than a lot of things, but it's not available in low-resource countries. Here's another uterine factor on hysterosalpingogram. You see these defects. That's an endometrial polyp, and things like that can interfere. So those are the kind of uterine factors that you're looking at. And as far as tubal factors go, that's probably the most important thing we need to talk about here because of the fact that that's the most common cause 80% of the time. There's three tests that you can do, and they're all problematic for low-resource countries. They're considered low-tech here compared to a lot of things we do. Uh, hysterosalpingogram, you can see I listed advantages and disadvantages of a hysterosalpingogram. Um, just, you know, putting dye up into the uterus, squirting it up, squirting into the tubes, watching with a fluoroscope, and seeing what it looks like. We do them on just about everyone undergoing an infertility evaluation. The problem is when I talk to people treating infertility in low-resource countries, most of them don't have a fluoroscope. They may have an x-ray machine, but they don't, they don't have a fluoroscope. And you could try shooting dye in and then taking a flat plate, but it's really very, very hard to read. I've had people send them to me to evaluate and they're just very hard to read because you don't know when to stop or should you have used a little bit more or they used too much and no dye was all over everything. So uh, it's that's hard, but that's the cheapest and easiest if someone has a fluoroscope where they are. Histrocontrast salpingography uh, is something that's used that you need an ultrasound for and you could take saline 
and injected it. And most places, especially in the last 10 years, it's been interesting because I teach overseas each year, and it's been interesting to watch the progression. Most people today have ultrasound machines. So that's a possibility, but it's harder to read and to train people for. Laparoscopy always was considered the gold standard, but obviously that's a really big deal. And some people don't even have the nitrous oxide that they can put in uh, for gas to do laparoscopy in their areas. So it's more of a problem. Here's results of the hysterosalpingogram. You can see on the top the uterine abnormality, which is shown schematically on the right. You can see the big swollen tube on the second one, the hydrosalpings. And on the third one, you can see the fibroid that's distorting the cavity here and narrowing it. So there's a lot you can see on hysterosalpingograms, but they're not perfect. Um, sometimes uh, abnormality in the uterus will block dye going through. Sometimes you can get a spasm. It looks like this tube is blocked on the right, and it obviously isn't, uh, as was found later, it's just a tube spasm that it wouldn't let the dye in. And you can also see you can get dye out through the, to any sort of obstruction, you can get dye out through the vessels and give you bad tests. Um, bottom line is all three of these tests are pretty much the same in what they can tell you. Uh, but here's a test that shows even discrepancies between laparoscopies and hysterosalpingograms. So we don't have a perfect test. This is a hysterosonogram where you just need an ultrasound. And again, you inject some dye in. And here you can see the polyp quite nicely sticking out. That's very easy to, to evaluate the uterus in a low-resource country with just saline and, and ultrasound. However, to use it to look at the tubes is much more difficult. As you squirt it out, you sort of get these, uh, you mix uh, saline with air, or you can mix it, you can use some more expensive dye, but you're more likely there to mix saline with air, and, you, and these air bubbles will go through, and you have to not blink. Well, it's happening to be able to see it. It's, it's a little bit harder. Uh, there again, some scintillations coming through. So you need ultrasound for that. This is an electron microscopy picture showing a proliferative endometrium and a secretory endometrium. You can see the difference looking at that, right? So when I trained in infertility work, we thought endometrial biopsies were really important for diagnosing infertility. They are outdated. There is no reason to do those anymore. And the data on it, these are all women who got pregnant in these cycles. And you can see that the reproducibility of them is not good. Here's another test we used to always do, the postcoital test or Simpsuter test, looking at whether you had nice mucus with good sperm in it. You would dry it. Look at the beautiful ferning pattern and the lack of pattern. Doesn't that look like it really shows you something? Again, don't bother. It's outdated and it doesn't correlate. So basically, you've got your three tests. Look at the sperm. Look at the tubes. Look, check out ovulation. Very simple. Laparoscopy obviously is out of the question in some places. It used to be there were five diagnostic tests we did for an infertility workup. Laparoscopy was one of it. It's now felt that you do that if you have an indication. 
you know, if you have an adnexal mass, if you think you have a hydrosalpix, if you have some other kind of pathology uh, that you're looking for, um, then you go ahead and do that. But you don't have to do that for everyone. All right. We've talked about the problems from infertility and the causes. We've looked at the diagnosis. Now let's just spend a little time on treatment. And if you have someone who is not having regular periods and they are not ovulating regularly, these are the types of problems to think about that may be causing them. And if you have someone not ovulating well, that's, for example, the time to check a thyroid test. Most places I go, uh, they're not standardly done. In low-resource countries, you have to send them out, and they're expensive to do. But that would be an indication in a situation like this. Uh, what do you do to treat ovulation problems? Well, today, we have a whole list of things. We used to use just Clomid, and Clomid is still the mainstay, and Clomid is easy, and Clomid is cheap. Um, but we have other possibilities now also. Clomid is, you know, five pills, and that's it. Uh, Clomid is a, a mixed estrogen uh, agonist and antagonist, so it tricks the body into thinking it's, there's not enough estrogen, and so it tricks the ovary to work harder is basically what it does. There's very set protocols on how to give Clomid. There's side effects, not common. Uh, you can see multiple births are less than 5%, and they're almost always twins. Uh, you can get some of these side effects here, but again, not too common. Uh, how long do you use it? I've put this slide up as an example. This is the effect of the duration of treatment on cumulative pregnancy rates. And using Clomid to get somebody to ovulate, you can see in the first cycle that they ovulate, you get about 51.8% of the pregnancies you're going to get. By the second cycle, you're up to 76% of the pregnancies you're going to get. By the sixth cycle, you're up to about 100% of the pregnancies you're going to get. The point of this being, you don't keep somebody on Clomid for two years. They can't afford it. It gives them false help. It isn't working. So no treatment should go on for more than six months. You're going to see the, all the results you're going to get. Many of you have heard of metformin, which is used for diabetes. It is used in people with metabolic syndrome and polycystic ovarian disease. And when Clomid hasn't worked for uh, ovulation, uh, metformin often will. There's a new medication. It's not a new medication, but a newer use, letrozole. Is an aromatase inhibitor. Uh, it's been used uh, in breast cancer, but you can use letrozole. You can see it has a higher ovulation rate than Clomid does. And also it's a pill that's easy to use. In women who do have true elevated androgens, you can add some dexamethasone, and you can see that the pregnancy rate is much higher. So there's, there's all sorts of little tricks that you can play with the ovulation drugs, but... That's really the nicest infertility problem to have because we have so many things that you can work with. And most of those things at a basic level are not that expensive and may be available in a low-resource country. Another thing that's done in polycystic ovarian disease, if other things fail, is surgically to drill holes in all those follicles. 
you know, uh, polycystic, they have multiple cystic follicles. Each of those follicles are putting out hormones that are causing an imbalance. And you can go in and, and drain them. The big problem with is scarring from bleeding. So you need somebody who knows what they're doing. And again, it's harder in a low-resource country if you haven't got a laparoscope. Uh, I put this in for completeness because these are the gonadotropes is using for ovulation induction. And basically, they're not going to work in third-world countries. They're very expensive to use. Um, they need uh, monitoring of blood tests and ultrasounds to see what you're doing. And you can see that they have the multiple gestations of up to 15 to 20%. They have ovarian hyperstimulation. There are women who die from ovarian hyperstimulation. So with the other environmental issues you have in a low-resource country, it's not going to be very popular. And what you don't want to do is wind up with situations like this because it's rare to have healthy-looking babies standing there when you come up with this kind of situation. Another trick that works well in, in the U.S. and can also be used in low-resource countries is intrauterine insemination. It actually helps for a lot of problems. Um, it improves the ovulation timing. It gets more modal sperm high up, and it... Uh, increases the number of capacitated sperm because you need to wash them and process them in the lab before you put them up there. So you tend to get more healthy sperm up there. The problem is to put them in the uterus, you do have to go through uh, what's called a sperm washing, and you need some minimal lab things in order to do that. And the problem is you don't need somebody in a low-resource country to just take a syringe of sperm and squirt it into the cervix. There's so many prostaglandin, she'll probably pass out from it. Um, but here, here's one showing uh, pregnancy rate in couples with controlled ovarian hyperstimulation and intrauterine insemination versus timed intercourse. So you can see that it does increase pregnancy rates. Now what about these bad tubes we talked about? There you can see two great big ballooned out tubes. And here too, uh, this is what those tubes wind up looking like. Here's a different kind of blockage. Instead of being the end of the tube, it's at the base of the tube, uh, the proximal portion of the tube. These are interesting blockages because many times they're false. Uh, they're often just from a plug of mucus that gets in the way uh, or from tubal spasm. And today we just do something called uh, a hysteroscopic cannulation and either with x-ray or hysteroscopy, put a cannula up, pass it through there, and open it. And it's, it's at least 80% successful. Again, unfortunately, hysteroscopes are rarely found in low-resource countries. What you don't want to be doing this for is really tubes that look like this. Now, I don't know if you can see, but in this tube, it's, there was a blockage on the hysteroscopicogram that that x-ray looked just the same, that I stopped right there. But this is called salpingitis they're like nodules. There's, there happens to be constrictions all the way down the tube. So just opening one isn't good at going to help. Um, if you have a big tube, there's a lot of factors that go into whether you can fix them. Surgery isn't done very much in this country anymore. Most people go right to in vitro fertilization. But uh, there's a lot of factors that will 
uh, influences success, and this shows good prognosis and poor prognosis for opening up those big dilated tubes. And if you use a good prognosis person, uh, you actually can get almost a 50% pregnancy rate with surgery for those tubes. These are just a couple pictures I took at surgery of opening the ends of the tubes. Here's a tubal ligation that you can see the part that was ligated is cut out and the tubes put together. This is in the middle. You need a microscope for doing this. You need 8 or 10 O suture. Uh, you need very special microcautery and little things to get it done. And uh, you can get some good success rates if you have good tubes. If you don't have good tubes to work on, your success rate goes down to zero. And again, in a low-resource country, you don't want to be operating on these people. But this, this study, I think, was really interesting out of northern East, northeastern Nigeria. It makes my point. They took 92 women uh, who had tubal blockage, and they tried to fix these tubes without having the microscopes and re- without having the teno suture and without having the things we use, but use the same surgical technique. And the results are bad. They didn't get very good success at all. And what the authors concluded was the low pregnancy rate seen in this study is unlikely to improve significantly even with good case selection, as long as tubal macrosurgery is the modality of treatment. So I mostly have this slide in there to talk to doctors who are working in low-resource countries and just say, don't do it. If you haven't got the equipment, don't do it. This is me uh, several years ago on on the left. And uh, this is Louise Brown on the right. Anybody know who Louise Brown is? First test tube baby. That's right. Louise Brown was the first test tube baby. She was born in 1978. And now since 1981, there have been 5 million babies born by in vitro fertilization in the world. So this has become a very successful procedure. So why don't we import this over to low-resource countries? Well, there's arguments for IVF in developing countries. Infertility is a disease needing medical treatment. The high prevalence of it is from tubal factor infertility. I told you about the strong negative consequences of childlessness. And and what has to do with equity and fairness and ethics? IVF should not only be for the rich, which is what it is for. Uh, <clears throat> preventing uh, infertility has not been successful. Adoption is rarely an option. And so people feel IVF should be put in developing countries. On the other hand, the arguments against it is there's more important reproductive health needs. Moms are dying in labor. Babies are dying. Budgets are limited. There's other non-reproductive health needs, malaria, HIV, vaccinations. Uh, There's the issue of many of these countries being overpopulated. How does that match with the child wish? people wanting to have a child. I can tell you in China, they have decided you can only have one baby or if you're in the country, two children, but you are entitled to that second child. They have very big IVF programs running in China, and I've been over there lecturing on the most esoteric details of fine-tuning IVF success rates because they're entitled to it. Complications of uh, hyperstimulation in multiple births will really have an 
an impact on the healthcare system besides just the procedure itself. Low-level facilities, limited professional experience, and limited media and other laboratory supplies. Um, you have to keep replenishing those supplies. Um, in developed countries, healthcare tends to be nine to twelve percent of the gross national pr- product. In developing countries, healthcare is only about four to six percent. So when we talk about just the economics of can this be done? It's estimated in Nigeria, if you started doing advanced reproductive technology, it would take up 50% of the healthcare budget. Is that the right thing to do? Uh, again, you need, oh, here, there are uh, some private clinics actually in most countries who are doing this, but there's not access for the average person. You need a lot of specialized equipment. That's a freezer for keeping embryos in. But interestingly, there is a new group put together, established in 2010 by the World Health Organization, uh, called the Walking Egg, with a goal of giving global access to infertility care. And they aim to make infertility more affordable and accessible in low-resource countries. They have a new technique where their lab is basically in a shoebox, the size of a shoebox. They have had 15 babies born by it already in Belgium and in England. And they are planning on uh, starting the first low-resource country use of this in Ghana, which in the next year or so. So there may be some other things available. So in summary, what do we need to take care of this problem? Well, I think we need education and reforms, and they have to be based on the cultural belief systems. We can't go in as the savior of the white stallion and tell them what to do that don't fit with what they believe culturally. We have to do education and uh, prevention of infertility. A lot of STI prevention uh, is necessary. We need to train health professionals, and we have to establish low-cost delivery uh, services. They need to be simple, low cost, effective. They need to be preventive for evaluation and for treatment. And uh, these are all things that hopefully will help in some ways. Now there are countries that are, are working on this. Believe it or not, I took this picture one week ago today at the border of uh, Zimbabwe and Botswana. Um, Be smart, be clean, get circumcised. I think that might sell a little less than condom use. But they're having campaigns to cut down on sexually transmitted infections. You see signs uh, all over and countries trying to get the message across. But we really have a long way to go. Have you got any questions? Yes. Uh-huh. It is. And those are the only choices we have. Tubal factor being the biggest issue, that's the one you like the best. And I guess mostly I could say is here what's, here's what's available to do it. It may be that histocontrastography may work, but 
it's a huge training issue because no one knows how to do it, but they do have the equipment. Or in places that have fluoroscopes, HSG is still the basic answer. I think you can easily not do laparoscopy. Uh, but, yeah, that's, it, it, that's, that, that's the problem of this whole talk. It's a, it, we are in the hordes of a dilemma. There's things that are available, but not practical. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much.